Count it a privilege to open God's word with you as we continue through Paul's letter in the book of Philippians. And so I'm going to start. I'm going to pick up the last phrase of verse 18. And Paul says this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your words that you have given to us as recorded in Scripture. We recall the words of Jesus where he said that he gave us his words, and in doing so, he, he gave us his joy so that our joy would be full. I pray that this morning, as we look through this passage, as we see and know and understood what Paul knew, that we would find joy in your words, that we as a people would see Christ as supremely worthy of the sole focus of our life and the spread of that message about Christ, that that would would cause our faith to grow and that we would find joy. Father, we need your help to know and understand, to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. We need your spirit to use your words in our hearts, Father. May I not be in the way of that. May I not say less or more than I should. May you use your word in our hearts, and we need your help, so we ask for it now. In Christ's name, amen. We are, we are picking up in verse 19, and we're really leaving off just somewhat in the middle of where we left off last week, where just to pick up the context of where we're at in the section, as, as Paul is writing this letter to the people at the church there at Philippi, and this was a group of Christians that he loved, had a close relationship with, and as he's writing the letter, he is probably about 12, 10 to 12 years removed from when he had visited them in person, got the church started, and now he's in prison. We don't know for sure, but probably in Rome, and and he maintained a warm, close, personal relationship with this church, and they so deeply cared about him that they continued to support his ministry, even when others abandoned him, and they stuck by him, and they continued to financially support his ministry. And so they they had heard that he was on hard times, and they sent a financial gift to Paul, and this is kind of his thank you letter back. He wants to encourage them in their faith, and you see the warm, close relationship that they had. And as we started through this, you see Paul's prayer for the church. You see his confidence that God, who started a good work in this church, he would be faithful to bring it to completion, namely the sanctification of these believers, that God would keep working to progress their faith and bring about the eventual end of that salvation that he had started in their life. And so he wants them to to be excited about that. And and he wants them to have this same confidence. And so he says, listen, I'm confident God's going to do this good work in you. And yet 
they were very concerned about Paul because he himself was in prison at this time. He himself was facing hard times. And so he writes, and we started in verse 12, and he says, listen, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So his hard times, his imprisonment was only making the message of Christ be spread further as other brothers and sisters were emboldened and encouraged to keep proclaiming the good news about Christ. There were even people who were speaking badly about Paul, and he says, listen, this, this doesn't matter. Christ is the central focus and I can still rejoice is the way he finishes. That that Christ is proclaimed whether in pretense or in truth. If you look at verse 18, you'll see this is kind of where we concluded and left off uh, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Paul recognized, as we said last week, that joy wasn't dependent on circumstances but it was in Christ. That's where you would find joy. That's what gave Paul's life meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so we want to keep thinking about that. And Paul is now going to shift gears because he says, in this I rejoice. He's speaking of his present circumstances, the imprisonment that he has. But what about going forward? What about for the rest of Paul's life? What about in his future? What was it that he was going to face? Would he still be able to continue rejoicing? Would he still find joy in whatever it was that lay ahead for him in the unknown future? Because presently, things did not look good. He was in prison. There were people speaking badly of him. And for present circumstances, he says, I will rejoice. The gospel's going forward, the good news about Christ. But what about going forward in the future and the unknown that lay ahead? If you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, one that has placed your faith and trust in Christ, I'm speaking this morning primarily to believers, those that understand the good news of the gospel, this this simple yet profound truth that Christ Uh, That even though we are separated from God by our sins, that that Christ came to this earth and died on the cross to to be the payment, to, to be the covering for our sins, to take the punishment for sins that you and I deserve. And the good news of the gospel is that any who turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in that good news, that that good work that Christ did on the cross can find life and forgiveness and salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're here and don't understand that, I want you to keep listening this morning because I want you to see how beautiful that message is. I want you to see the purpose that that brings to your life, the singular soul focus that through the future, uh, the, 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 the clarity and purpose that that can bring to life. So if you don't know Christ, that's what we invite you to. Uh, for us as believers that do know Christ, uh, how, w- What will bring meaning to our life? Where will purpose to our life come from in whatever it is that lays ahead of us? Especially as we start into this passage and the words that I just read, you realize that Paul is about to set up the fact that he doesn't know what's ahead of him and yet he's confident that God's going to accomplish something good, that Christ will be honored and glorified. And he says, whether in life or in death, for Paul, this is so serious that, that, that he realizes it's a life and death issue. And, and yet Paul is saying the, the message of the good news of what Christ has done is going to advance whether in life or in death. How could someone be so confident in the good news about who Christ is, in that message of the gospel, that it, that it can get them through life and death scenarios? People that are willing to die for the gospel. 
That's a reality for millions of our brothers and sisters around the world today, that they might be dead tomorrow because of their faith in proclaiming Christ. And so where does that kind of hope come from? We know if we look at church history, we would see that often God has used people who are willing to die for the gospel to continue to advance the gospel, to spread, to push forward the message and the good news of who Christ is. So there's a man in church history, one of the early church fathers, one of the early uh, pastors or bishops of a local church in the New Testament era, uh, time period. His name was Ignatius. He was born within five years of when Christ died on the cross. So he's, he's, he's very shortly after that that he was born and uh, became bishop or pastor of the church at Antioch. And as he was imprisoned for the faith, as he was persecuted, as he uh, was told to stop preaching Christ, uh, he, he understood that, that his life was on the line. He knew he was going to die. And, and he says, he says there, there's an article here in Christianity Today, and the, the writer says this about Ignatius. Ignatius was going to die. He knew it. He wanted it. Those words are strange words. That here's a man who knew death was in front of him, and it was what he wanted. It was not what he feared. He didn't seek to stop it. Why? What were the circumstances? You see, Ignatius realized that there, were, there was a group of Christians who had heard about his imprisonment, who had heard that he was on the execution block, and Ignatius had been offered that if he would recant the faith, if he would deny the gospel, he would be released. He would be set free. Now, there was a group of, of Christians at Rome, and, and they didn't want this to happen. They, they didn't want Ignatius to die, and, and Ignatius learned that they had plotted or come up with plans of how to break him out of prison. I mean, certainly they, they didn't want him to recant the gospel. They didn't want him to deny the faith, but nor did they want him to die. And, and yet, Ignatius was not happy when he learned of their plans. He said this, I fear your kindness, which may harm me, he wrote to these Roman Christians. You may be able to achieve what you plan, so they're planning his release, and you might be able to achieve it, but if you pay no heed to my request, which is stop, he didn't want them to follow through on their plans, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. His desire was to attain or to imitate Christ's likeness in death and be faithful to the end, and he knew that if the story was spread, that he recanted the faith. Excuse me, he knew that if he escaped death, the story would be spread that he recanted the faith. And that was the last thing he wanted. It would be bad for the gospel to, he, to hear one of these primary leaders of the church deny the faith. And if he lived in the face of this execution, he knew that that would be a bad mark on the gospel. And he, he, so he actually didn't want that. He said, I have to go through with this and it's what's best. And don't allow your, your love for me on a, on a human level to overcome my love for Christ and the gospel. And what he wanted for them was for them to pray that he would be faithful in the face of death. Where does that kind of love for the gospel come from? Where does that kind of purpose and meaning in life come from? That kind of singular focus that we could be believers who, who in the face of death, we are willing to proceed. Because we are not fearful what man might do to us. But we love the gospel such we have this singular 
purpose to our life of who Christ is and the message about him, that we're willing to die for the gospel. And as you'll see what Paul says, not just die for the gospel, but be willing to live for the gospel. That whether by life or by death, the singular sole purpose of my life is who Christ is, the message of what he has done for me, and the desire to see that spread, to advance the gospel, to push this message forward. And so here's Paul, and he has said, look, I want you to know that my present circumstances, my imprisonment, those who are falsely accusing me and speaking ill of me, this has only served to advance the gospel, and whether in pretense or retrieves, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, he says in verse 18. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 19. And, and as you're taking notes, I like at this point to give you the one thing that's going to kind of tie together the message. I need you to keep listening and waiting. We'll get to it at the end of the message, and it will kind of tie things together. But you can begin to take notes as we jump into the passage, and we're going to look at verse 19, because Paul's about to say, listen, even going forward in my future, in my present stances, circumstances, I can rejoice. But even in the unknown of what lies ahead for me, I can still rejoice in that. And here's, here's what he says. So depending on where your Bible breaks the the verse translate the the verse breakup for verse 18 the the ending between 18 and 19 is somewhat of an unfortunate ending so we're going to pick up the last phrase of verse 18 because it's really tied to what lies ahead before he said in my present circumstances i will rejoice and then he says yes and i will rejoice with this forward looking i will continue to rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that i will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death here's Paul's message to the Philippians he says listen I, I want you guys to know this I I'm going to keep rejoicing even in what lies ahead of me for I know that I know I'm fully confident that this is going to turn out for my deliverance that this is, is going to work out. Now, that word deliverance that's translated there is the same word for salvation. So it, it, it could be salvation, but he's talking about deliverance. And the idea is somewhat commentators try to figure out, is he talking about physical deliverance from prison? Or is he talking about eternal salvation, you know, the final result of what's going to happen? And he's somewhat vague. Perhaps he has both in mind, but he's confident of this. He wants them to know that, that it's because of their prayers for him and the help that he's going to re receive through the Holy Spirit that, that now he knows all of this is actually going to turn out for his deliverance. And he's fully confident. He, he, it's his eager expectation and hope that he will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's Paul. In his present circumstances, he's facing imprisonment. In terms of what lies ahead for him, he knows that, that a trial is coming. He'll have his day in court. And he's confident that through the prayers of the people and the help of the Holy Spirit, when he gets the chance to stand up and defend his faith, and when he gets the chance to explain why he's in prison for preaching the gospel, what's he going to do at that moment? He will not back down. He will not be shamed. He will, with full courage, now as always, proclaim Christ and proclaim the gospel. And this is going to bring honor and glory to Christ, regardless of what happens in that trial. 
If he's, if he's acquitted, if he's allowed to continue living in life, that's going to bring glory to Christ. If, if he is, in fact, executed for his faith, well, that, that doesn't sway his confidence in what God is able to accomplish. You catch how, how confident Paul is, how eager he is excited. As you go through these verses, they're just packed full of meaning. And so he, he knows that it's their prayers and it's the help of the Holy Spirit that's going to turn out for his deliverance. And he says this, it's my eager expectation and hope. That word eager expectation, we use two English words to come up with one of the original words. And if you could see the original word, there are three words packed together in one word. The first part of the words means um, away. The second part is the head. And the third part is to watch. So you put it all together and you realize, so the head is turned away watching eagerly expecting almost like the head is stretched out you're on the edge of your seat trying to watch make sense like that there's this there's this suspense filled anticipation the head is turned away from all other distractions you can't distract me i'm watching because i'm eagerly expecting my son uh rowan he's our youngest He's just figuring out how to toddle around the kitchen, and he can, he can pull himself along certain things. We've got a table in our kitchen that's this high. It's really little for the kids to eat a meal at when life is busy, and so two days ago, Ivy was sitting there, and she was eating a piece of pizza. Right now, Rowan gets to eat like these gross puree blended nastiness that come in tubs and jars, and they put different colors on them and names on them. They say they're vegetable and fruit and rice and... He likes the stuff. I don't get it. I don't know why. But he was watching his sister eat a piece of pizza. And in the last month, he's figured out that there's other kinds of food that exist than gross, disgusting, pureed slop. And uh, so he's, he's, he pulled himself over to the table. He's got one hand on the fridge, one hand on the chair. And that puts him right at the height of Ivy. And he's watching the piece of pizza on his tiptoes like this right? Eagerly anticipating. At the, and he's licking his lips. He's, he's zeroed in on that piece of pizza. I could have brought a bucket of slop over to him at that point, and he wouldn't have been enticed by it, right? His head is turned away from distraction. There's the pizza. He's eagerly expecting it, right? And it's not just, it's not Paul's point. It's not that it's just wishful thinking, like maybe this is going to happen. Rowan did not get pizza. He just hoped it would happen. For, for Paul, this, this is like eagerly expecting, confident. This is assurance. His eager expectation and hope is that whether by life or by death, he was not going to, Paul would not be ashamed. Rather, Christ would be honored, magnified through his body. This was Paul's expectation. This is what kept him going. This is how he could face the uncertainty of imprisonment. He could stare death in the face and say, no, 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 no. Regardless of how this turns out, I will not be ashamed. We all know what that means to feel shame, right? As I was listening to another pastor teach on this, and he, he, we realized, he brought out this point that we know what shame is. It's, it's when we're in the spotlight, and all eyes are on us, and we get the answer wrong. We fail to live up to expectations. The lump is in our throat, right? The heart is pounding, and we feel shame because we have failed to measure up. Now, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that would be, you know, when the spotlight is on us and we succeed, right? When there is honor, right? When the freshman kid gets the buzzer beater to send the underdog to the Sweet 16, that's honor, right? That there wasn't shame. But notice what happens for Paul in this verse. The opposite of shame for him was not that he would be 
honored. The opposite of shame for Paul was that Christ would be honored. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so Paul realized that, that he, he knew he was not going to get to that last day and he was going to have the opportunity to share the gospel. And there would be no shame in proclaiming Christ, no matter how it turned out. And he didn't care whether he received honor. All he cared about that his body, his life, was used to bring Christ honor because that's who Paul loved. The things that we love are the things that can be taken from us, the things that we can feel shame over. And Paul had no, he loved Christ and knew that Christ was sufficient and worthy to the point that there would be no shame. His eager expectation and hope was that Christ and the message about him was sufficient, that there would be no shame when Paul got the chance to proclaim that, regardless of what had happened to him. Regardless of the fact that, that uh, he had been imprisoned, that he was being spoken ill of against, Paul says, listen, this is my eager expectation and hope. You can't distract me. Here I am in prison. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ will receive honor and glory. The fact that I'm unjustly in prison doesn't bother me. I'm focused on Christ. The fact that people are speaking ill doesn't bother me. I'm focused on Christ and him being honored, magnified, glorified. The fact that here I stand trial and I might face death, I'm focused on the fact that Christ is going to be honored and glorified. That's what Paul is trying to communicate, and it gave him great assurance, gave him great confidence and boldness. We need to keep going because then he he says, listen, this is true whether it's in life or in death. Can God use death and people in the face of death to advance the gospel? We've we've looked at that already. And and when people keep Christ as the singular sole focus of their life, it it, it gives them great courage in the face of death. Of death, And Paul says, whether by life or by death, I know how this is going to turn out. Christ is going to be honored and glorified. There's a man by the name of Joseph Son. He, he, he's a Romanian pastor. He, uh, a lot of his ministry comes from the 1970s in Romania. I was actually trying to look and see if he's still alive today. I don't know if he is. I know that he still had public appearances within the last 10 years. So if any of you know if he's still alive, speak to me afterwards. Uh, but he spoke of the, you know, the communist oppression. And when he in Romania uh, would, would preach the gospel, and there would be... Uh, Persecution. There would be interrogation. He would face the threat of capturement, and, and he would be in, uh, interrogated with beatings and persecution. Um, and, and there would be those that would come to him and try to get him to stop preaching the gospel. And this man had such courage and boldness in the face of death that he was not willing to stop proclaiming the gospel. And he tells several stories about how these interrogations went. And uh, even as he would speak with his captors about the gospel... And there came a point where one of, the, one of the communist secret soldiers, a major, threatened to shoot him. And as the soldier described that event, when he threatened to shoot Joseph, apparently Joseph's face shone. He was eager and delighted at that prospect. And the officer says, what? When I threaten to shoot somebody, he at least gets afraid. But you smile. You're abnormal. And Joseph responds, no. No, I'm not abnormal. I am super normal because you cannot threaten me with glory. When you shoot me, you send me to glory, and I am not afraid of glory. 
And Joseph describes, he says, you should have seen their frustration because there is nothing more, this is his commentary, there is nothing more dangerous on this planet than people who are not afraid of dying. You cannot do anything to them. They are beyond your reach. But it was this certainty that there is no death for me, that it's only the invitation home, and that it's invitation to glory. And Joseph said, I can hardly wait. You see, as Joseph had this extreme boldness in the face of fear, again, there was another time where he was threatened with death and he realized what was happening and he had this exchange with the officer and he said, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. That was his boldness in the face of death. And, and, and as, as he had the opportunity to hear one of the ways that one of the soldiers talked about him, the soldier said this, we know that Mr. San would have loved to be a martyr, but we were not foolish enough to fulfill his wish. And Joseph San thought about that statement. He said, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe as long as I tried to save my life. I was losing it. Now I was willing to lose it. I found it. He's echoing Jesus' words from the book of Luke where, where Jesus says in 9.23, and he said to them all, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And, and, and so here's Paul feeling that same resolve that out of love for the gospel, out of love for Christ, he's not afraid whether it's life or death. He knows that Christ will be magnified. And so it's, a, it's an incredible thing when we see Christians who are willing to die for the sake of the gospel. But Paul also recognizes, on the other hand, that there is life, right? The prospect that he might be vindicated, that he, uh, or at least released in a temporary earthly sense, that he would have the opportunity to go on and continue ministering. And so he's going to now explore both of these options. Because for Paul, the primary sacrifice was not dying for the gospel. You're actually going to see that for Paul in this passage, the, the primary sacrifice was living for the gospel. And so I want you to look at verse 21, and this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 and he says this for to me he's going to explain life or death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain this well-known verse what, what is Paul saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain well, if you, could have, if you could have heard it in the original language, remember most of them would not have read this letter, they would have heard it, and Paul was using a play on words for the word Christ and the word gain, that they immediately, as they heard the words pronounced, they would have picked it up, uh, and they would have said, yes, yes, that's, 
That's what it means, that to live is Christ. And in the next verses, he's going to go on explaining that, that remember, Christ was the central soul focus of Paul's life. For him, living was to, to gain Christ, was to live the way that Christ wanted him to, was to live out and fulfill the purposes that Christ wanted. And if he died, well, that would only be gain. That would, that would bring about the ultimate realization. So let me read some of these verses that explain it. And he says this in verse 21, for... For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, so if I continue on in this life, if I'm allowed to continue living, that means fruitful labor for me. He's going to continue to have the opportunity to minister with the gospel and that ministry will bear fruit. So if I keep on living, that's going to be fruitful labor. I'm going to keep presenting Christ. Christ said that we would bear much fruit as his followers. And so to live is to live as Christ would want me to and fulfill his purposes. And if I get to continue to do that, that's going to be much fruitful labor. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. You almost hear Paul musing and pondering as he tries to sort through these two options. Is it going to be life? Is it going to be death? Which I should choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. This is a difficult decision for my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul says, listen, if, if I could just choose, I would depart. I would be with Christ. That's, that's by far the best literally it's very much better far much better it's triple superlative it's just like this is by far the best right to depart and to be with christ that that word depart is a, a military word which means to break camp it was also used in 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 the nautical sense of ships that would be released from their moorings and they could leave they could leave dock so if you remember a few verses earlier he used a military term to say i'm set here appointed for the defense of the gospel and now he's saying i'm ready to be released from my appointment i'm ready to go that's much better to be with christ and and yet he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For the Philippians, they needed this fruitful labor, and he recognized that it would be more beneficial for them on their account. And so now you understand what we hear as two polar opposites, right? Life and death, these two things do not go together. And Paul is saying, whichever option it chooses, whichever one God has ordained for me, the, 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 the two outcomes are actually much closer in the outworking. They're, they're actually aligned quite well because to live is Christ. Christ was so much the singular soul focus and purpose of Paul's life that if he kept on living, he was, he was fulfilling the fruitful labor that God had given him to do. He was living out the purposes that Christ had given him to do. If he kept living, he was doing what Christ had asked him to do. A few chapters later, in chapter 3, verse 8, he's going to say, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ was the singular focus of his life. If he kept on living, Christ would be the result. But if he died, he would then gain Christ. He would be in the very presence of Christ. That was his desire in that sense. That, that to, gain, to die, that would be gain. This is not a bad thing for Paul to die for the gospel. It's, it's gain. And it, and it isn't simply that Paul is saying, this life here is so hard that I want to hit the escape button, right? That I get, I get to go to heaven and, and escape all of these earthly trials. That's not primarily what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, my life here, in spite of how difficult it is, Christ is the singular focus of my life. And therefore, when I die, 
I now get face to face the singular sole purpose of my life. That is, that's my profit. That's my gain. The word gain meant profit. He says, now I get that which I've lived for. What joy is that? That to be staring face in the death and the prospect of death and to the extent that we have made Christ the singular sole purpose of our life, that to die would then be gain. What a beautiful thing that is. And so I, just, just for a moment, for those of uh, a word of application, even to uh, those that, that might be nearer the prospect of death, none of us know when our time will come, certainly. I tried to think about an appropriate, respectful way to say this. A word of application to our seniors. I'm not sure what to say. Uh, to those that think they might be closer to death than others, afterwards you can let me know what the better way was to say that. I assume that I'm a little younger on the spectrum there, but I could be tomorrow. You know, I kind of still think of death in terms of decades away, but for those for whom death might be years, not, not measured in decades anymore, but it, it might be around the corner. And we live in a culture that, that says you get to a certain point and that's it. It's over. You've lived the best. There's not much left. And here's what Paul was saying. No, 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 no. This life here, this is not the one I'm living for. Christ has been the singular sole purpose of my life and the best is yet to come. There will come a day when I die and I open my eyes and that's gain. Right? And so to the extent that, that you have lived your life loving Christ, pursuing Him, desiring to see the message spread about Him, well then death will come and that will be gain because you will be face to face with the one for whom life is worth. There's nothing else worth, worth that. And if you realize I've spent too many of those years not following Christ, there's no better day to today than to say that's what I'm going to make the singular sole purpose of my life because when I get to the end and I stare the prospect of death in the face, I want to be able to say this, this life was not what was lost. This life was lived for what I gain in the next. Right? To live right now is Christ and to die is, is gain. And, and so he says, I, I, I kind of don't know what I would choose because if I could, it'd be far better for me to go ahead and depart and to be with Christ. But I know this. I know that if I keep on living, that's fruitful labor. You, 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 you guys, it's better for you if I remain in the flesh. And so after he's kind of mused about this and he's laid out both options, he says this in verse 25. He says this in verse 25. Okay, convinced of this is kind of the thought. He says, convinced of this. There's almost this refreshed confidence as he's thought it out. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul's confidence, he expects to be released. Perhaps even have the opportunity to come back and minister again face to face with the Philippian believers. I'm, I'm convinced that I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see what Paul is saying? He's like, L listen, my desire would be to depart and be with Christ. He's the one I'm living for. That's going to be gain when I'm him. So if if, if the gavel comes down and I face execution, I'm not going to be ashamed. Christ will be magnified through that death. But if I get to keep living, which I kind of think this is what God wants because it's more necessary on your account. He says, listen, I, I'm convinced uh, that, it, that, that I'm going to remain for your progress and joy in the faith. You remember back in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That, that word advance, we said it was, it was to uh, progress forward even the, in the face of obstacle and difficulty. The exact same word is what Paul uses here in verse 25. And, and I'm going to continue with you all for your progress, for your advancement and joy in the faith. 
Paul wants these believers to see their faith grow, to have their joy increase. He wants their faith in Christ to be pushed forward. And he knew that he would be an integral part of that if God so saw fit to allow him to be used to have fruitful labor among them and so that their joy and progress in the faith would be pushed forward so that it would be progressed even in the face of difficulty. And Paul knew that in, in him, in his life, the believers would have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, to proclaim how good God was so that, so that others would see him on account of the fact that he got the chance to come back and minister to them. And so this is what Paul says. Not only in his present circumstances can he find joy. He knows, that, he knows that joy isn't dependent on the circumstances, but in Christ. And so even though he was imprisoned, God was going to use that to push the message of the gospel forward. And not only was that true of his present circumstances, it was true of his future. He didn't know what, whether in the face of life or death, God was going to advance the gospel message forward. And Paul knew that he would not face shame. But there, that, that he had confidence that Christ would be magnified in his life, whether by life or by death. And even though he was willing at this point, far better for him to depart and have that face-to-face with Christ, which was what he had been living for his entire life, on account of the Philippians, he was willing to continue living so that their faith would go forward. He's going to give them some instructions, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. He's like, okay, he's going to switch back from himself, and he's like, now here's what I expect of you, so we'll get to that in a couple weeks. But in terms of the lessons, some of the scriptures that we've just walked through, what would be a couple of lessons for us to think about? One of the first things that, uh, I've got a couple things, two main, two, one main thing, and then just, here's, here's a the pre-point before I get to the main point, I guess is how you could say it. One of the cool things to see in this text in verses 19, I want you to see the, the interdependence of, the, of their faith, how it depended on one another. In verse 19, you catch the fact that Paul says, it's through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit that, that what God is going to do. So here's Paul, an apostle who's dependent on the prayers of the Philippian believers, which is cool. And then you come down to verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see the interconnectedness of this? Paul, an apostle, needed the prayers of the church, and yet Paul recognized that if God so saw fit, the church would need Paul's fruitful labor so that their faith and joy would progress. Make sense? And and you see this just like, what a cool implication that we in the body of Christ need one another, right? I'm dependent on your prayer. You are dependent on my prayer. I'm dependent on your fruitful labor for my progress and joy in the faith. And you are dependent on others' fruitful labor for your progress and joy in the faith. None of us can make this. It's not just us and Jesus on a solo mission. It It is the body of Christ that God puts together and primarily in local churches to fulfill the one another commitment of scripture and you see the interconnectedness of their faith. I think that's a really cool thing. And then finally, uh, here's the main point of application and I alluded to it earlier, but notice in the passage, notice what for Paul was the sacrificial choice. And even as we, even as I used a few illustrations and we catch the magnitude of dying for the gospel and being willing to give our lives for the gospel, what was the sacrifice for Paul? What was the sacrificial hardship? It was remaining on account of the Philippians. It was living for the gospel. 
right? So here's the one thing. If you're taking, points, if you're taking notes and you want to fill in the one thing in your notes, it's this. If you are willing to die for the gospel, are you also willing to live for the gospel? Just a question of application as you think through this passage and you see here's Paul who had, who had so made Christ the central focus of his life that he was ready to, he was ready to depart. And, and it's interesting to think, are, am I willing to die for the gospel? For some in this room, God, perhaps God would call you to die for the gospel. It's certainly happening around the world. But, but for others, are we willing to live for the gospel? Give our lives in sacrificial service for the ministry of others. If you're willing to die for the gospel, are you willing to live for the gospel? Right here in Shemong, Tabernacle, Medford, wherever it is that God has put you, are you willing to say, I, I, because of who Christ is and because he's the sole central focus of my life, I'm now willing to live for the gospel. So what, what would that look like to live for the gospel right here in 2018 in this part of the world that God has placed us in? For some, it could be significant. There might be, uh, you know, just a handful, one, maybe two, maybe three life-changing decisions that might happen. Uh, for some, it could be really, really significant to live for the gospel in that kind of way that, that you, you do and don't take jobs and promotions at work based on how that is going to affect the churches you can and can't participate in and how that ministry of the gospel would impact your churches. You know that on a big scale like that, living for the gospel could affect what you do for your employment. Uh, For some, there would be some that would feel a a sense or a call or a burden to the pastoral ministry or to spend their life in missions to go across the globe for the sake of the gospel because not only are they willing to die for the gospel, but to live for the gospel. As our economy today becomes more and more global, it's easier and easier for people to do what they do in different places. And you're seeing a, a resurgence and an interest of people that say, I can do what I do, make a living in a different place of the world, and so I'm going to go help in a church plant with an unreached people group and try to intentionally push the gospel forward even though I'm making a paycheck the same way I'm doing here stateside. And something like that could happen. Um, it could be some that, that face early retirement or use that retirement period to, to uh, not just live out the American dream, but to see how they can push the gospel forward in whatever community and calling God might give. give. And so for some, uh, you might have one or two decisions like this that are life-altering, right? And yet, for most of us, the other 365 days of the year, when you're not making those one or two life-changing decisions, living for the gospel is not going to be super um, life-changing. It's going to be simply doing the will of God in front of you. It's going to be living as a light for the gospel in the, in the workplace that God has put you in. As, as teachers, as engineers, as business owners, as healthcare workers, that, that you faithfully proclaim Christ where you are there. Uh, in the neighborhood that God has put you in, to be a light and a testimony and a witness for the gospel. And so as you leave and you get the chance today to pick up these Good Friday Easter invite cards, maybe it's, let's, let's, if God calls you to go to the other side of the world, world, and if God calls you to die for the gospel, I pray that you will be faithful in that, but it might be as simple as finding a way to give this out and saying, I'm going to live for the gospel in that sense, and uh, maybe you've got a neighbor that has moved in, and you can take this and a plate of cookies and leave it on their doorstep or something, you know, with a little note from your address or something like that, and just to say, I want to live for the gospel in that sense, and where does this kind of desire come from, right? That So maybe you've been hearing this in the last couple weeks, and it's like, yes, I want the gospel to be advanced 
Christ in my life. I want Christ to be the singular soul focus and purpose of my life. How, how can we as a people work and move towards that? Especially in this period of transition that we're in, I would say that it's essentially important um, during this time that we be people who are interconnected and dependent on one another for, for the progress of our faith, but also that we would be people who have Christ as the central focus of our lives. And I would love to tell you that there's some fantastically wild, awesome eight-week program that, you know, on Monday nights, we're going to meet here at Shawnee Baptist Church, and in eight weeks, you're going to come out with Christ as the central soul focus of your life, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Like eight hours and boom, you're like the Apostle Paul. Uh, I wish we could figure out how to do that. Uh, but I, I want to tell you, and this is actually more encouraging because I think it has greater, more fantastic long-term results. God has designed for us to grow in the Christian life in fantastically ordinary ways. That, that we would be people who would get, make Christ the central focus of our life by getting to know him through his word. How are we going to have joy and progress in the faith? I've got two verses of scripture for you to see that Paul wanted these people for their progress and joy of their faith. One would be in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. Where is faith going to come from? How is faith going to progress? Paul says this, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then Jesus said this in the book of John, John chapter 15, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you want your faith to progress? Do you want joy in your life? Do you want Christ to be the singular, sole, central focus of your life? Jesus said that the very words he gave us was his joy. He was putting his joy into words and he spoke them to us so that our joy would be full. And brothers and sisters, we've got that recorded for us in scripture right here. And so for some of you here today, and you desire the gospel to advance and God may call you to die for the gospel. And I pray that you are faithful to that calling. But for some of us, God's calling is that we would live for the gospel. And it might be as simple as waking up tomorrow morning and reading the words of this book and seeking to know Christ and seeking how to apply it to our life. And brothers and sisters, be willing to live for the gospel tomorrow and the next day and whatever comes after that. And because I know what this is like, that some of you may be encouraged tomorrow morning to, to pick up God's word and to read it, and you'll say, well, that nothing happened. That wasn't exciting. No lights went off. I don't think I'm like the Apostle Paul yet. And, and, and I want to encourage you that this is the, the way faithful brothers and sisters that have lived this journey longer than I have have encouraged me that this is, this is going to be years in the making. You won't notice the difference tomorrow or maybe even by next Monday, but that we read God's word over and over and over and, and we get to know Christ in that way and it produces change in our lives. Had the opportunity to go through some of this with my uh, with, the, with the Young Family Sunday School class that I was teaching a few weeks ago. And Donald Whitney wrote this book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he, he accounts, he, he records the quote from uh, a Welsh pastor named Jeffrey Thomas. And just, just to encourage you in, um, that we're in this for the long haul. 
If you want to live for the gospel and you want Christ to change your life through his word, we're not talking about next week and we're not talking about next month. We're talking about faithfulness over years, even when you pick this book up and don't understand it and you dig into it and keep trying to know it. And here's what he says. Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The apostle Peter said that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul. I am glad he wrote those words because I have often felt that. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer. And then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh, that same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Brothers and sisters, if you want Jesus Christ to be the sole central focus of your life so that you're not only willing to die for the gospel, but live for the gospel, we need to get to know the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, through the written word of God. And I pray that this is your focus. And may we do this together in the days and weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we, we are thankful for the way that you have revealed yourself to us through the person of your son. We want to be people who are so in love with you and focus on you that we're not only willing to die for the good news about you, but we're willing to live for the good news about you. Help us to be people that seek you out in your word and that we would strive to get to know you in that way. Help us to be connected to one another in our faith so that we're praying for others, they're praying for us. We're seeking the joy and progress of their faith. They're seeking our joy and progress in the faith. Help us to be these kind of people. And may we start by reading your word. I ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.